Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Radio Free Europe with the Liberties Current Affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe with the Liberties media manager here in Washington, D.C. As Russia's war in Ukraine enters the fifth week, authorities in Central Asia are slowly coming out and making their positions known about where they stand in this conflict. Uzbekistan's position couldn't be clearer when Foreign Minister Kamilov took the stage a couple of days ago and urged literally the war has to end and declared that his country won't recognize Ukraine's breakaway regions of Luhansk and Donetsk as an independent republics. Also, in a recent interview with the German press, Kazakhstan's deputy foreign minister expressed similar sentiments on the breakaway regions and also added that they don't wish to be on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. We also see efforts by the Kyrgyz authorities to stay neutral in this conflict, meanwhile sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So five weeks on, the dynamics in Ukraine changing in no one's favor. What do we know where Central Asia stands today? And what explains the recent statements by some of the countries that are not in line with Russia's position? To discuss all these, I'm joined by Ambassador George Kroll, a former U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan in Uzbekistan and currently an adjunct professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Ambassador Bakit Bashimov, former Kyrgyz ambassador to OSCE and a number of other countries, and currently a lecturer at the Northeastern University, and Bruce Panier, Central Asia analyst. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us in this episode of our continued conversation about the implications of Russia's war in Ukraine on Central Asia and regional reflection on this war in Central Asia. So, when thinking of uh, Central Asia's reaction, perhaps uh, let me start with you, Ambassador Kroll, here. When we think about Central Asia's reaction, this week Uzbekistan clearly kind of stood out with Kamilov's reaction when he urged for peaceful settlement of war and declared that Tashkent won't recognize the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk republics as independent countries. It was clearly a signal of some sort. So what was your reading, Ambassador Kroll, of his statement? Yes, I saw this statement. It was important to also not just what Foreign Minister Kamilov said, but where he said it yeah. and how he said it, because he was called to speak in front of the Uzbek parliament hmm. and was asked the precise question of what was Uzbekistan's government's reaction to the situation in Ukraine which I could only imagine was something that was um, already somewhat arranged ahead of time that the foreign minister would speak to the parliament and that this question, he probably knew it was coming. And then he delivered a very official statement, which was then publicized, in which he made it quite clear that Uzbekistan does not recognize and would never recognize the, the independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk and also called for the end to this conflict, uh, which was certainly a clear clarification, hmm. as a redundancy, of Uzbekistan's position, because the only other reaction formally had been that Uzbekistan was not present for the United yes. Nations General Assembly vote on the situation in, in Ukraine condemning the, the Russian action there, right. as opposed to, say, Kazakhstan, which formally abstained from it, but Uzbekistan was not even there. Mm. And therefore, there were probably questions, well, what does that mean? Mm. And I could only imagine that there were questions to the government of Uzbekistan, probably from the government of the United States, 
and others as to what is your position mm. and could you make a clear statement. So that is how I saw that and as, as the first official clear uh, statement of the, of the Uzbek government on the situation. Yeah, so Ambassador, so now that uh, he said what he said, there might be a question in Moscow that what does this mean uh, from their perspective? I mean, what I'm trying to say here, Ambassador, is this was not clearly a, another statement of neutrality from my perspective. It sounded to me like what he's saying is clearly taking a sort of a stance on this. And his stance sounded to me closer to those of Kiev than Moscow in, on this conflict. Well, yes, I, I would say that the stance of Kamilov is also, I would say, would have been with the approval of President Berzioyo. Yes. As I understand that from just um, reading what is coming out of Moscow and somewhat out of Tashkent, was that there was a phone call between Russian President Putin and President Merzioya, where probably this was discussed. Uh, that is, what is Uzbekistan's position and the like. I, we don't know, of course, the details of that conversation, but I think that this was perhaps even prior to Kamilov's uh, statement in front of the, the Uzbekistan parliament. And I think it does reflect Uzbekistan's rather long-standing position of not seeing itself as aligned with the Russian Federation, not absolutely opposed to it, but uh, in this position of not agreeing clearly with the Russian position on Ukraine and, and doing it quite strongly. Uh, obviously, Uzbekistan does have a dependency on the Russian Federation economically. The number of, of Uzbek citizens still who live and work and maybe out of work in Russia. Also, later, there was a statement making clear that uh, the position of Uzbekistan towards its own citizens, should they take up arms in the Russian armed forces mm. against Ukraine, that, that is a, there is even a criminal penalty mm. to that in Uzbekistan. So that's mm. another clear statement of the, of the attitude of the Uzbek government, which you're quite right, does put it not on, squarely on the side of, uh, of the Russian Federation, but even more so towards a support of Ukrainian sovereignty and its territorial integrity. On the other hand, they apparently, the Uzbek-Russian oligarch Usmanov mm. is, from what I understand, may be living in, in Tashkent and has been given, as it were, perhaps, if you want to call it asylum there. And that may raise certain questions about Uzbekistan's relationship to the sanctions um, regime applied against Usmanov himself, mm. as well as others associated with the Russian Federation. Yeah, it's it's like a fifth week now, right? The Russia's war in Ukraine. I mean, no one was really clear where Uzbekistan stands. And you said that, you know, there might have been question asked in Washington, D.C., in their conversation with authorities where they stand. What I'm saying is here, Ambassador, I mean, what what is that that might have influenced the views of Tashkent on this so that they decided to come out the way they did? Is there anything might have instigated them to say this, what they said? As I said, I, I suspect that there was a question from perhaps the United States and maybe other countries in the European Union as to clarify that position, and also whether or not Uzbekistan might feel that it could come under certain sanctions mm -hmm. because of its economic 
contacts with Russian individuals and Russian firms and the Russian Federation in general, and uh, also a restatement of uh, Uzbekistan's rather consistent policy of wanting to have more or less accurate and uh, and and what was called a multi-vectoral foreign policy of um, not having hostile relations with the Russian Federation, but not uh, but also not a hostile relationship with the United States. The United States and Uzbekistan even before this situation in Ukraine erupted, were uh, developing a, uh, a closer partnership, if you will, and closer relations, including Uzbekistan wanting to attract investment from the United States as well as from Europe, and also uh, to have uh, closer uh, political ties. I believe yeah. that Foreign Minister Kamilov, I think, has been the only foreign minister who's actually visited Washington since the, the Ukrainian invasion. And I think that's probably another sign of hmm. Uzbekistan wanting hmm. to position itself perhaps more closely with the United States hmm. as the situation develops so that hmm. they don't uh, suffer as collateral damage in the uh, intensifying yeah. of sanctions and perhaps even political measures taken against the Russian Federation. Yeah. So uh, maybe Ambassador Bakit or maybe Bruce, uh, any of you want to jump in, please do. What I have in mind is, you know, on one hand, we heard uh, Uzbek foreign minister say what he said, which might not please Moscow. On the other hand, only a few days into his statement, foreign minister has reportedly fallen ill and departs to abroad for treatment. I want to believe that he could be genuinely ill and need, in need of treatment. But some insiders are telling our Uzbek service that he might not return to his position. What's that tell you? Well, the first thing I would say is, is um, Foreign Minister Kamilov is getting on in years, right? I mean, he's been around for a long, long time, well into his 70s. Ambassador Kroll might know better than me. but And the first time that Mirziyoyev was elected president, there was rumors that he was going to get rid of Kamilov. And then and then when Mirziyoyev was reelected, there was also rumors ahead of that that he was going to get rid of Kamilov. Just because he's been around forever, I mean, you know, he's one of the last of the Karimov era mm. politicians, still got a top post in government besides Mirziyoyev. So, you know, I mean, there's actually there's some legitimate reasons why he might be going. But that said, you know, Ambassador Kroll had mentioned that that Presidents Putin and Mirziyoyev did have a phone call. And, and I would imagine President Putin was probably not well pleased with the statements from Kamilov. And he might sure be not, cast yeah. now as something of a scapegoat in this. I, I think that is what, what Kamilov said is Tashkent's position and Mirziyoyev's position. But I think that he might be sacrificed at this point to try to keep relations with Moscow at least going. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, because I, I agree. You know, the, the statement was was amazing because it seemed to be leaning toward Ukraine, but mm. but that he felt the need to state it. And as Ambassador Kroll said, I mean, this was clearly scripted, and he said it to to the Parliament. Uh, you know, they've kept their distance from Russia for most of independence, but that's still a really bold statement. And when you make a statement like that, you it is real close to just coming out and saying we support Ukraine more than than Mos uh, Russia in yeah. this case. So he, but uh, like I said, in the end, he was probably going to have to go sooner or later. Sooner, I would imagine, anyway, because of his age. But you know, he, he might at this point be 
a peace offering to the Kremlin. Wow, that's a complicated situation there. I mean, as I understand, Bruce, what you are saying here is that he made to say this what he said so that Uzbekistan sort of clarifies its position. I mean, what is the message this might give if he indeed not returns to the office? It's easily explained. He's, you know, he's well into his 70s, as far as I remember. Um, yeah. You know, he just wanted to uh, retire. But, I mean, why not go out in a blaze of glory? You know, it's a sensational statement. It made headlines all over the place. You know, and, and, and as for he's made to say it, I, I don't know if I'd put it that way exactly. Hmm. You know, like I said, this is clearly the government's policy. Hmm. Uh, that That is their stance on Ukraine. It's a powerful message when it's made by the foreign minister, too. Obviously. He, he's in no danger of falling from grace inside Uzbekistan. Let's not forget for a minute that he's married to uh, Sharaf Rashidov's daughter, right? You know, and, and Sharaf Rashidov is, of course, very well respected and uh, amazingly respected now in Uzbekistan after he's rehabilitated. So he's not he's not going to fall from grace or anything like that. But, you know, and, and maybe he will survive. But uh, mm-hmm. the rumors of him being replaced have been around ever since Mirzioyev was uh, became acting president. So it's six years almost now. Um, I just wonder whether this was the right circumstances in which he might let go. Um, so from the diplomatic perspective, Bucket, do you want to, to dive in here? Like, you know, what does this tell you about Uzbekistan's position? What what Uzbekistan is trying to do here? Uh, you know, if your assumption regarding uh, Kamilov that mm. he will not return to his position mm. uh, will become true, Probably we are observing the shift in the foreign policy of Uzbekistan. In which way? Uh, in what way? Uh, during 40 years, especially during Karimov's times, uh, Uzbekistan tried to just push uh, forward its sovereign independence mm. and even tried uh, hardly to create its alternative organizations like Guam in order to not strengthen influence of Russia and Uzbekistan in the region. You know how Karimov was against the military presence of Russia in that uh, region. And uh, also at the same time, Uzbekistan tried to keep the right balance between great powers, China, the United States and that uh, region. And uh, that's why we uh, at that time saw that in comparison with our state in Central Asia, Uzbekistan genuinely supported its uh, sovereignty and independence. But, uh, you know, when Kamilov said that uh, Uzbekistan doesn't recognize Lugansk and Donbass, he sent a very strong message because, you know, that uh, these two regions created by Russia uh, were the prerequisites for the invasion uh, to Ukraine. And if Mirziyoyev changed position of Uzbekistan, and uh, shift more toward to Russia, we will see this kind of uh, changes. In my view, it's unlikely changes for Uzbekistan also, because increasing dependence on declining Russia and uh, just changing the balance of power in uh, Uzbekistan in that region will not be the positive outcome in years to come. And uh, we saw that on March 24 and before that on March 2 in a general assembly in both cases, Uzbekistan as well as all uh, Central Asian states abstained from criticizing aggression of Russia Mm -hmm. and for 
support and resolution on uh, humanitarian uh, aid at uh, uh, refugees and so on. And uh, probably Uzbekistan today facing hard times in order to find its own position to save its uh, Soviet independence, mm. influence of Russia, and uh, probably we will see the uh, limits of uh, influence of Alisher Usmanov to decision-making process of mm. Mirziyoyev. Uh, this is very interesting things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously we have other uh, countries to cover in this conversation, but what I'm still sort of puzzled about is about uh, Kamilov's statement on Ukraine is like, you know, first, as all of we have said, that it was pre-arranged. He said what he said, or maybe he was made to say what he, he had to say. Uh, which probably angered Russia. And then if the rumors are proven to be true, now he might let go, which will make Russia happy. Maybe it's just a very simplistic way of looking into this. But um, I guess we have to move on. Ambassador Krul, I'm coming back to you. To a lesser extent, I have sort of a similar feeling about uh, what uh, we heard uh, from the Deputy Foreign Minister of Kazakhstan say uh, just a couple of days ago to the German press when he declared that uh, his country too won't recognize the independence of those breakaway regions. Plus, he also said that his country doesn't wish to be on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain, of course, there's a reference is very clear there. So how do you read that statement? Well, again, I would say it's also important to know who said it and where they said it, as we've noted when Mm, uh, comparing the foreign minister of Uzbekistan saying what he said to the parliament very officially. And then you have the deputy foreign minister of Kazakhstan saying this to the German press presumably, I, I, I guess, visiting Germany. And and so it's not coming from either the foreign minister and certainly not the president of Kazakhstan. It doesn't surprise me because I think the Kazakhstanis have to be even more careful than the Uzbeks because of their closer relationship with the Russian Federation and that they are a part of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. They're also part of the Eurasian Economic Union. There is a greater dependency when you think of all of the oil that is most of the income for the uh, government of of Kazakhstan goes through the uh, central pipeline consortium where there were issues as to whether or not it was closed for repairs at the port of Novorossiysk or not. So I think that the, the Kazakhstanis are playing this very carefully. And so in order to talk to an audience, the Western audience in Germany, to say these things, because I think the Kazakhstanis also don't want to be sanctioned or be seen too closely to the Russian Federation. But on the other hand, they don't want to irritate their strategic partner, as they would call it, uh, the Russian Federation, by being too loud about it at even higher levels. Hmm. Bruce, we have been talking about Kazakhstan's position. I mean, there there is a lot to talk about when we focus on Kazakhstan in this context. Like, you know, there are comments by the Russian politicians about it, and you immediately see reaction in Kazakhstan. And some of the reactions that we have seen in Kazakhstan so far might have been also, yes, about Ukraine, but also the statements that they have been hearing from some of the Russian politicians. So we have seen, like, you know, thousands of people in Kazakhstan organizing anti-war rallies 
Chilis. And obviously, Kazakhstan is not known for letting those kind of rallies marching on the streets. But in this case, they did let uh, those people come together and do what they had to do. So how do you explain Kazakhstan's position on this from yesterday to today? Okay, well, the first thing I'd say is that the fact that they did they did uh, allow one, actually, anti-war protest in Almaty, and then they t- turned out permission for the second one to happen. But still, the fact that they got permission to even do the one is also, you know, th- you can read signs about what the government's policy is likely to be on this, this question of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But by little things like that that happened, that they let the rally go on, uh, that the Kazakh government also made a big announcement when it sent the first shipment of humanitarian aid to, to Ukraine yeah. uh, just a couple few weeks ago, you know, a bunch of medicine and everything. And I think they sent a second one since then also. Those, those are like small messages about where they're leaning. As Ambassador Kroll mentioned, Kazakhstan ha- is tied up with Russia much more than any other Central Asian state simply because it borders Russia. And there's a, there's a lot of different connections that go there. But, you know, it, it, people have been saying ever since this started, and even before that, that when Kazakhstan looks at what's happening in Ukraine, it wonders if that's not the future of northern Kazakhstan, too. And, and let's face it, a lot of Russian politicians have said uh, that at the least northern Kazakhstan is, is Russian territory and, and hinted that it ought to come back to Russia. You know, even including some low-level Moscow Duma deputy just last weekend said that kind of stuff. So, you know, they, they really got to be careful in, in Nur Sultan right now about what they say, because there are members of the Russian government that are advocating incorporating part of Kazakhstan's territory back into Russia itself. And, to, and so it's just got to be a, a big worry for Kazakh officials and certainly tempers any comments they make about what is happening in Ukraine right now. But they are still making those statements. You know, we were talking about the deputy foreign minister. We have heard um, similar uh, statements before from the foreign minister, like coming back to the deputy foreign minister's comments. Yes, he said his country is not going to recognize Luhansk and Donetsk so-called republics, and that is not something that uh, Russia would like to hear from Kazakhstan today. And also they they said it was they don't like to find uh, themselves behind the wrongs side of the uh, Iron Curtain. That is very clear reference. And the third thing, you know, the minister was also talking about, you know, if, if a Western company that can no longer exist or can exist in Russia, we would welcome them to Kazakhstan. I mean, there are so many messages that you continue to hear. So who these messages are meant for when Kazakh authorities come out and say this? You know, may I uh, yeah, jump sure. uh, this conversation? You know, recently Peskov, press secretary of Putin, he said that uh, Putin doesn't want to reestablish a Soviet Union, mm-hmm. but Russian empire on its borders. It's one message. Mm-hmm. We know about uh, opinion of Putin regarding uh, Kazakh statehood. And uh, after that, we know that politicians who are very close to Putin, they are in uh, past, they frequently said uh, about uh, concerns of uh, Russian-speaking population in northern Kazakhstan. It means that uh, actually uh, Russia presents existential threat to Kazakhstan. And actually, today, Ukrainians fighting fiercely against Russia's saving independence and sovereignty of Kazakhstan. And uh, regarding uh, Tokayev and his team, they are still in transition, and that's why uh, this team has not any clear and holistic picture. They are jumping from one word to another word, saying about multi-vector foreign policy, but uh, in reality, they are 
don't know clearly what should we do, how to react to the situation. After that, Takai steams under the huge, still huge influence of offshore elite of Kazakhstan, which is hugely dependent on Russia because they enjoy the profits uh, from the export through the Russian pipelines and very close to Russian oligarchs and uh, institutions like FSB and so on. That's why I don't think that uh, today Takai's team thinking uh, very seriously about that. They are uh, busy for just uh, trying to strengthen their own regime, uh, to save their own power, and so on. Regarding yeah. this is a protest in Kazakhstan, I really surprised. Why? Because that number of people didn't come to protest against the repressions that uh, protesters faced uh, recently. Yeah. But yeah. they b- came uh, into big number to the streets against invasion of Russia. Yeah. This is interesting thing to know, because we are seeing very Kazakh people through this way would like to send message to Takai's team and uh, asking them to think more about a sonnet of independence of Kazakhstan. Mm, interesting thought there, yeah. Okay, so thank you very much for that, Ambassador Bishimov. So what we might be talking about in the upcoming weeks in this dynamic as Russia's war in Ukraine enters its fifth week and no weaker in the fight, uh, what the smaller countries in Central Asia are saying and doing, and what do their reaction tell us about their views of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine? Let's continue the discussion talking about this and many other questions very shortly. But first, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by Ambassador George Krul, a former U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan in Uzbekistan and currently an adjunct uh, professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Ambassador Bakit Bashimov, former Kyrgyz ambassador to OSCE and currently a lecturer at the Northeastern University and Bruce Panier, Central Asia analyst. I'm Mohammed Tahir, Radio Free Radio Liberties media manager and host of the Majlis podcast here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the changing reaction of Central Asia to Russia's war in Ukraine. So, Ambassador Bishimov, let me get back to you again on your country, Kyrgyzstan. So, Kyrgyzstan is suddenly repeating neutrality, neutrality messages more than we heard over the last uh, couple of weeks. You know, not a big position statement, obviously, but it is quite a contrast compared to what President Jabarov appeared to have said to President Putin in early days of the conflict in terms of Bishkek siding with Mar- Tell us about the the path that your country has been taking on this from yesterday to today. You know how country can be uh, neutral being a member of Russian-led military bloc, CSTO, and Eurasian Economic Union. After that, signing the so-called strategic partnership with Russia, being the clientelist state of Russia, hugely dependent militarily on Russia with uh, air base uh, on its own territory and so on. How country can be neutral in that way? It means that Kyrgyzstan does know what to do in that situation and try to save itself saying that it is neutral. But it is hollow, words and hollow position. You know, from the perspective you are describing that situation, uh, Ambassador Bishimov, yes, it looks like Kyrgyzstan is, you know, from all aspects in the Russian camp, 
But still, have we seen anything Kyrgyzstan does which sounds like they are taking the Russian side? Uh, yeah, no, Kyrgyzstan has no opportunity uh, to be neutral or uh, independent because during the 30 years... But what does that mean in terms of this conflict, though? I mean, if Kyrgyzstan is not neutral, if Kyrgyzstan cannot be neutral under the current circumstances that you are describing, then is Kyrgyzstan taking the Russian side? How we should understand the way you are describing it? Just uh, Kyrgyzstan in that situation doesn't matter. And that's why nobody asking the position of Kyrgyzstan, even Russia. The conversation that Jabarov had earlier with uh, President Putin, the message came out from there was like as if Jabarov saying that Bishkek is siding with Moscow in this conflict. So that kind of created lots of uh, conversation about where Kyrgyzstan stands on this. But on the, this yeah. is true. This is true position of Kyrgyzstan. Mm. True position of Kyrgyzstan expressed by President of Kyrgyzstan mm. regarding Russia. Mm. But our uh, comments regarding neutrality of Kyrgyzstan. It is does attempt to save the face and to save sovereignty and independence, which mm. is very, very limited. Mm. In the meantime, we have seen like, I guess this is NGO organized activity that humanitarian aid was going to Ukraine from Kyrgyzstan in recent days. Bruce, you brought up this during our conversation before I came to the studio, like, you know, Kyrgyzstan is repeating visibly repeating more than it used to in the past, the message of neutrality in this context. I mean, what was your takeaway from that? Why you felt the way you felt? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, one, I agree with what, what Keith said. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think the government's position is pro-Russian. Let me back that up just a second and talk a little bit more about why they're pro-Russian. I mean, yes, it was Japarov's statement. He posted something on Facebook after Putin declared that they were going to recognize uh, Luhansk and Donetsk and, and said that he supported that. And then we have the Kremlin statement, of course, saying that he supported Russia's actions in Ukraine. And that was from four days later, it's the 26th of February or something, right? That That's not, of course, what Japarov's press office said. They, they had a more watered-down statement that didn't mention specifically anything about Ukraine. Hmm. But still, uh, you know, Akobek Japarov, right, the head of the cabinet hmm. of ministers, uh, Russian Prime Minister Masushkin was hmm. in uh, Bishkek not long after the invasion started. Yeah. And yeah. he said, and he was supposed to, supposedly passing on a message from Japarov that was uh, Kyrgyzstan has been with Russia for 200 years and will be with Russia for 300 more years, which is a strange thing for a government that's supposed to be nationalist to say. But, you know, so there was real clear signs that, that, that Kyrgyzstan was going to side with Russia, you know, in the first week after the invasion started, this most recent invasion, invasion anyway, you know, but but it, you can see that that even regional opinion was not that, you know, mm. and really the communications between Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan with Kyrgyzstan, I, I don't know how it is at lower levels, you know, Kazakh and Uzbek presidents have been speaking by phone several times since mm. this started, and I haven't seen anyone calling Japarov mm. in Kyrgyzstan. Mm. In fact, the only contact he had with a, another Central Asian leader was to wish Sirdar Berdimukhamedov congratulations on being elected president in Turkmenistan. So I think they understood that that was, that was an isolated position, not only with the majority of the international community, but even regionally. To try to lean toward the Russian side was not a popular move and could 
create some serious complications for them in the mm-hmm. future. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, though, like phone calls between the Uzbek and Kazakh uh, presidents. And again, we are getting this clear message from these two countries among the other Central Asian countries in terms of their position about Ukraine. That's that's very interesting. On Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, though, the other two Central Asian countries that we have not discussed yet in this context, I guess we hear nothing from these two countries, Bruce, when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine. So what is the message from their position, if that is a position? Tajikistan, of course, can't say anything bad about about Russia. There's just no way. Mm. Uh, you know, Bikit mentioned that the, Russia has a base in, in Kyrgyzstan. Technically, it's a CSTO base, but, it, but everyone knows it's real Russia. But Russia has an actual base in Tajikistan and 7,000 troops. And, and, you know, President Rahman is constantly saying that, that his country is in danger, that there's all kinds of militants south of the border and in northern Afghanistan that are coming to get him. And the Kremlin backs him up on this all the way. I don't know to what degree it's true, but there certainly are militants, some of them Central Asian citizens, some of them citizens of Tajikistan who are in northern Afghanistan and they are in militant groups. And so he's really counting on Russian help if, if something goes bad. And of course, he, he's the lone wolf in Central Asia that doesn't engage with the Taliban. The other ones have. Uh, but he's he's been pretty uh, obstinate that that he doesn't like having them as a as the government in the country, the neighboring country of the south. Turkmenistan, of course, you know they can always say we're neutral. They have UN recognized neutrality. You know, I thought it was interesting though that that just today there was talk about the transconnector that we had a podcast months ago about this uh, this plan to do a, a smaller version yeah. of the Trans-Caspian pipeline, and that uh-huh. came up again, huh. you know, in the news. And and so you have to wonder. At least Turkmenistan seems to be re-exploring previous options to see if it can't do something. Uh, the last point I would make is that let's face it: is all the Central Asian countries knew that they were going to be hurt by this, mm, yeah, and once, yeah. especially once international sanctions went on Russia. The pain is coming; it, yeah. it's just starting, and it's coming. But but what they didn't expect was the, that the actual war would drag on like this, right? Mm. It would have been bad enough if Russia had come in, made a lightning strike, and taken everything it wanted in Ukraine, and then they would have still been under international sanctions for years to come, and the Central Asians would have suffered for that. But now it's dragging on; it's mm. not even clear. You know, certainly Russia will not get everything that it originally planned no. from the invasion of Ukraine. It might get nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so you really got to wonder if you're in Central Asia anywhere, what exactly are you getting out of friendship with Russia at this point? It's really mm. dragging them mm. down, and there mm. doesn't seem to be an e- even an end to the conflict. Yeah. It's really the worst uh, of all worlds. Yeah, part. that's a very interesting point there. And in, in fact, that's also a point where we, we should be thinking about concluding the conversation here. But let me also add... One point to this, and let the I guess uh, Ambassador Bashimo was trying to say something. So let me add my question, and then also ask your opinion and what you had to say. So Ambassador Bashimov, now we are talking about the the Central Asia's shifting position on this, particularly the two big ones, and there is quite a difference when we compare where we were yesterday compared to today. So w- what we will be talking about, Ambassador Bashimov, in the next two three weeks in terms of their reaction. You know, two things are important. Uh, Lavrov yesterday spoke about agreement with Pakistan regarding uh, Pakistan stream. It's a pipeline to Pakistan. If uh, this project be realized, of course, it's difficult to believe. it will go through a territory of Central Asia. But it seems I, to me... I think, I think, Ambassador Bashimov, I think that project is within Pakistan, I guess. You know, that's a pipeline project that Russia is supposed to build from Karachi to Lahore. Probably, probably. But uh, anyway, I suppose what Central Asia probably interested in that mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my biggest concern is... Uh, 
possible shift, as you said, mm. foreign policy of Uzbekistan. Mm. Because uh, if it will happen, it means that there will be no country in that region who will uh, keep its uh, good balance between Russia, China, and the United States in that region. Mm. And uh, this region will be under the uh, umbrella uh, of Russia. This is, uh, in my understanding, is uh, not positive uh, scenario mm. in years to come. Mm. Uh, after that, you uh, mentioned about two uh, states, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Both states, you know, concern in conflict with each other regarding border, yeah. and they are concerned on which side Russia will be. And that's why I think that uh, they both looking for the protection mm. of uh, Russia. Right. Ambassador uh, Krolsov, sort of a final point here. I mean, what I was talking about earlier is like, we have been talking about this shifting dynamics, shifting positions of Central Asian authorities in the context of what we heard from Kamilov and what the Kazakh authorities have been saying in recent weeks about the Russia's war in Ukraine. It's certainly a departure from what we heard in the early days of conflict. So there is a gradual shift that we see in their position, in their views of Russia's war in Ukraine. So what I was wondering about is, as we continue to talk about, as the war continue to drag in Ukraine, what what we might be talking about in two, three weeks ahead in terms of Central Asia's reaction And also the second leg to my question is, so what will determine their next step, next reaction on this conflict? Let's put this all into context, Mm. because from my experience in Central Asia over a decade, more than decade Mm. of the like, Mm. I'm always impressed by how able and agile the Central Asian leaderships and governments have been in managing their relationships with Russia I would say also China and the United States, but particularly with Russia. And I don't think it's a matter of friendships on any one side, it's a matter of interest. Mm. And when we talk about Kyrgyzstan, I think the Kyrgyz are in for the interests of Kyrgyzstan, not for anyone else, and the Uzbeks for their own and and the Kazakhs and the like. And having been in, in, in Uzbekistan when the Crimea was annexed, and also when I was the DAS in the State Department of Central Asia during the Georgian conflict. It was quite clear none of these states recognized any of these republics as the Russians did. And frankly, as a former ambassador to Belarus, isn't it something how even Belarus has not recognized Luhansk and Donetsk or any of these? And I don't think for the Russians that isn't a red line. The red line is do not condemn Russia publicly Hmm. or in the United Nations and do not get any closer to NATO, the United States, or ever from a military, from Mm. a security standpoint. Mm. And those are two red lines none of these states have crossed. Mm. Neither Uzbekistan nor Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, and they won't. Mm. However, what is changing, and it's something Bruce touched upon, and that is as this prolongs both the military conflict Mm. and Mm. the economic sanctions bite more with the Russian Federation, I can see that the Central Asians are looking very closely to insulate themselves. And they may be seeing that the Russia as a military power, as an economic power, is going to be fading over Mm. time. And what does this mean for them and their 
associations with the Russian Federation, which isn't that Russia is getting stronger, but that Russia is getting weaker, is even accelerating the weaknesses they had already seen and perceived in the Russian Federation, mm -hmm. which then brings in the question, as this proceeds, where do they turn and what are the opportunities they have to maintain their own economic situation from worsening, which would have political, certainly political effects for all of them. And this brings in the, the, this, the question of China, too, because will the Chinese be able to step in to even increase their influence yeah. more? Or do they wish to see more mm -hmm. active European, other than China and other than Russia, involvement in their economies in order to keep their economies going as they see and may what we may be seeing and they may be seeing is a weakening of Russia's economic and it's also military as it becomes more and more mm. bogged down perhaps right. and see and they see that the the results of the Russian military have not been perhaps as successful as the Russians may have hoped for mm. and so there may be recalibrations about not wanting to cross the Russian red lines, but also sort of how nimbly they can adjust for the realities of what they may see economically and even mm. military of mm. the potential of so, Russia. So that is, that's the question, though, Ambassador. Their efforts to readjust into the current reality on the ground, I mean, what will indicate in terms of the practical translation of their thinking in terms of where to look forward? I mean, what are the areas they are thinking? What are the calculations that they are having in their minds? Is there anything which will explain to us that this is the direction they are thinking in practical terms? Well, for instance, we're already seeing that, as, as I understand, mm. the, the Kazakhstani government has refused that Russia's mm. either offer or demand mm. that they pay in rubles. And that's something that pulls them away hmm. uh, from Russia economically. Hmm. And uh, what will be the repercussions from that? Because they, the Kazakhstanis know if they do that, they, by tying themselves to the ruble as they had, it has been a terrible situation hmm. for the Tengi, and they wish the Tengi to come up. Yeah. So I think you will be seeing these adjustments that are being made, and they're not going to want to you know, make a, a big public thing to hmm. humiliate hmm. the hmm. Russians. Hmm. But they have to be realists right. and right. whether or not uh, and, and, and be very careful. And they've been doing this for 30 years. Yeah. And, and they're frankly quite masterful of you know, keeping their independence and not becoming Ukraine and Georgia and the mm -hmm. like by how they manage this. So right. we shall see. But it is certainly going to demand the utmost. And when you see people like Kamilov or even Mirzioyev, who's had a long experience of dealing with the Russians, and and certainly Tokayev and all the others, and Rafwan, and even mm -hmm. Muradov and and Bernie Mukhamedov in Turkmenistan, they're going to be uh, using their wits and I think their acumen, diplomatic and and their realism to um, see themselves through this to whatever may become the world within the next year or more. Okay, final thoughts from you, Bruce. So we we started the discussion for talking about the changing positions of Central Asia from yesterday to today. So let's end the conversation also in that context. So what do you think, what we will be talking about in terms of their reactions to this in maybe in, in next two, three weeks? 
Oh, boy. Well, you know, I mean, their public reaction will probably be pretty much where it is now. You know, again, as we've heard during this, it's rough for any of them to criticize Russia. I mean, it's really, it's impossible. Life could be made so difficult for them very quickly if they actually criticize Russia. So I don't see that happening. But, you know, just to follow up on the last point that, that Ambassador Kroll was addressing, that they've always been trying to figure to diversify and get new export, import routes and stuff. And we're, we're seeing some of that happening now. Now, right, Kazakhstan has been reached out to Latvia to use its ports for yeah. exports, right, uh, because it knows that Russia is under sanctions. And of course, um, you know, Pakistan and, and Uzbekistan have been talking about this railway mm-hmm. to connect them, get some kind of north-south route going between Central Asia and the right. Indian Ocean, Arabian Sea, for, for quite some time. I would imagine that those processes will accelerate greatly in the coming weeks, even that they will they will start to establish new partnerships. Uh, with other people besides Russia to do the same things that they do with Russia right now in terms of trade and even in terms of security guarantees. I mean, there was a Turkish military delegation. It might even still be in Uzbekistan, but it was there yesterday. Yeah, Uh, Turkish president was there. Another pivot that they can make is to um, keep improving ties with Turkey, which they've been doing already Mm. for many months now, and actually several years even, where they're really bumping up the ties relationship they have with them, including the Organization of Turkish States, which they formed last November. So I would imagine, you know, that's another one you could probably imagine would be, the whole process will be accelerated with Turkey and and bringing ties up very, very quickly and establishing much closer links between them. So that's what I think you'll probably see, you know, not criticism, but but realism, pragmatism, you know, mm-hmm. that they that this is, now is the time they've been talking about diversification of yeah. export import routes. And, and now they almost have no other choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can yeah. see a lot of a lot of activity around yeah. that. Yeah. You, you just brought up the Turkish delegation and Turkish president, along with, you know, a number of high profile uh, Turkish uh, ministers and other business community leaders were in Uzbekistan yesterday, I guess they might have lived. So they were there. And what I heard from the, uh, you know, what coming out of that uh, conversation is that there could be perhaps many other things, but one thing is that they are planning to expand uh, the, uh, the trade turnover to $5 billion, I guess that's the, their annual objective. So I guess with this, we have to conclude our conversation here, but certainly we will keep our eyes on in terms of what comes next in Central Asia in terms of their reactions to Russia's war in Ukraine as it continues to drag. So thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador George Kroll, a former U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and currently an adjunct professor at the U.S. Naval War College for joining us today on this conversation. And also big thanks to Ambassador Bakit Pashim, a former Kyrgyz ambassador to OSCE in a number of other countries, and currently a lecturer at the Northeastern University and Bruce Panier, Central Asia analyst. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. Thank you. And this is it from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties uh, Current Affairs uh, talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye-bye.